Welcome to Defiance. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have an interview with Pete Patterson discussing the abuse of migrant workers and high death rates in building the infrastructure for the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Please do note, though, this is not an issue which is isolated to the World Cup. The abuse and mistreatment of migrant workers is rife in the Gulf. But before we get into the interview, I need to welcome and thank my sponsor, Kraken, and their CEO, Jesse Powell, who are helping make this happen. Kraken also sponsored What Bitcoin Did, my other show which is dedicated to Bitcoin itself, an act of financial defiance. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 by its pseudonymous inventor Satoshi Nakamoto as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom and Kraken is the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds, we are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Good morning, Pete. How are you? I'm great. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the show. Alex said I really needed to talk to you, and you know, as a keen football fan and understanding the research you've done here, I was very keen to do this. So thank you for coming on. Just as a, a background, just for people who might not know you, listen to my show, I mean, I obviously know you're a journalist, but if you can just give it a bit of background on why it is you're so focused also on Nepal and then the Qatar World Cup. Well, I've been documenting the lives of exploited workers for almost 15 years in, in, in all around the world, uh, with a particular focus of victims of modern forms of slavery. And in 2013, I moved to live in Nepal. And you know, every day, about 1,000 to 1,200 young Nepalis leave the country to work overseas. And so that was an obvious story for me to look at right from the start. And so ever since 2013, I've been following the lives of these young men who leave Nepal, and many of them who go to Qatar, which is obviously host of the next World Cup. Right. If this isn't a specific problem just for Nepal, though, although you've documented this yourself, there is a problem here for migrant workers across the world. There's a problem for migrant workers across the world. Obviously, there are huge human flows from poorer countries to richer countries. We're not talking about migration to escape conflict here. We're talking about economic migration, migration to yeah. find a better life. Obviously, as my reporting has shown, it doesn't always end up like that. But in my region, you know, if you look at uh, Nepal, Bangladesh, India, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of young men and women also leave those countries in search of work. And one of the most common de- destinations are countries in the Gulf. It's certainly not just Qatar. You know, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, all those countries in the Gulf are receiving hundreds of thousands of of, of young workers. And interestingly, there's also been a significant increase of migrants coming out of parts of Africa, uh, I would say, in the last three or four years. And why is that? Why is there a struggle domestically for them to recruit workers? In, in countries in the Gulf? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, first of all, countries in the Gulf generally have a very small native population. So, for example, Qatar has a total population of about 2.7 million. Okay. Two million of them are migrant workers. It's just a vast migrant workforce that far outnumbers the local population. So, first of all, uh, there's the small local populations. And secondly, the type of work that they want done is not the type of work that Qataris would be willing to do. You know, these are, these are difficult, dirty, dangerous jobs, often in construction. So these Gulf countries turn to the neighboring regions for, for their labor. I mean, the interesting thing about Qatar is, you know, by some measures, it's the richest country in the world per capita. And so it has everything except cheap labor. And that's why it goes to places like Nepal to source cheap labor. But I'm guessing, it, you know, it, it doesn't actually have to have ch- such cheap labor because, you know, in my research, I was looking, it has the, was it the third largest natural gas and oil reserves. So really, is this more of an abusive system than the, a need for cheap labor? They could easily pay good wages to these workers. I mean, Qatar is spending about $500 million every week on pre- preparations for the World Cup. They are not short of money, but what, what they're doing is they're, they're pulling in these hundreds of thousands of workers, uh, I mean, literally, actually millions, and by and large, these workers are being paid very, very low wages. To give an example of that, Qatar recently introduced a, a sort of provisional minimum wage, which is 750 Qatari rials a month. That is $200 a month in the richest country in the world. Jesus. So, uh, hold on. So... With that kind of income, what can they actually afford living standard-wise? Because I imagine it's not a cheap place to live. Yeah, uh, living standards in the way you imagine it doesn't really apply to migrant workers. uh, Because when a migrant worker arrives in a place like Qatar, they are effectively under the control of their employer 24-7. Is this the kafala system? Uh, yeah, I'll get onto that in a sec. They they arrive they arrive at the airport. They're picked up by their employer. They take into a labor camp, which is rented by their employer. They go to work. They come back from work to the labor camp. They have very little free time, and and, and the whole life is tied up with their job. So you know, living standards and you know, going out having fun, that sort of thing, it, it doesn't really apply to these workers. And and where. Where they do have the opportunity, for example, they have one day off a week. A lot of them tell me, I just sleep during that day off because they're so tired. Or, you know, if they do, there are some local facilities they can go to. But All right. Okay. We should probably work through this in some logical steps. So I'm going, to, I'm going to go back a step. Firstly, when did you first uncover these abuses during the Qatar World Cup? Because when I heard about your your work. I, I think I'd been aware of a documentary, so I can't, I couldn't find it, but perhaps it was the BBC or as a news article. I think I saw a couple of years ago where they were reporting on this. And there were, at the time, I, I'd read about passports being stolen and people being held against their will and like a high, high number of deaths. When were you kind of first aware? What brought you into this? I've been documenting these kind of practices since around 2010. But let me tell you how I got into it specifically when I was living in Nepal. So being aware that, that, that there were problems with migrant workers in the Gulf and that many of them were dying, one summer, summer of 2013, you know, I spent weeks standing outside the arrivals gate of Kathmandu's airport. And mm-hmm. off every flight from the Gulf, you know, hundreds of young men come out pushing trolleys, you know, full of 
their belongings. And sometimes, sometimes with big flat screen TVs, it's kind of like a symbol of their success, their migration success, because it is successful for some of them. But then I'd wait a little bit late longer and something else would come out on those trolleys from the airport, which were coffins carrying the bodies of migrant workers. And I followed one of these coffins back to its village. And the coffin carried the body of a young boy called Ganesh Bishwakarma. And it turned out he was just 16 years old. And he'd only gone to Qatar a few weeks earlier. And he came back and was cremated by his devastated and impoverished family. And you know that tragic tale of a small boy really set me out on the path to find out what was going on. So after that, I went to Qatar to see what was happening there, to find out why young men were dying, to find out why so many were facing so many problems. And, and what I found was not just a case of, you know, a sudden unexpected deaths, but a system of mass exploitation of migrant workers. So is this really one of those kind of separate economies that builds up because the World Cup's come in, they've got a, obviously a deadline to deliver it. Is it just this kind of separate economy that exists in Qatar? Well, it certainly doesn't exist only in Qatar, and it certainly doesn't exist okay. only, be, only because of the World Cup. The problems I'm describing uh, exist across the whole Gulf, and they've existed before the World Cup was going to be hosted by Qatar. I mean, these Gulf countries have been taking in migrant workers for, for many years. So it, it's, it's a long-running problem that has just become uh, worse and that has attracted uh, much more attention because of the World Cup and because everyone's interested in, in, in football. But who kind of monitors this? Who kind of regulates it? Because if, if this was happening in the... Well, you just wouldn't happen in somewhere like the UK. Is this something that the UN are monitoring? <laughs> well... Am I, have I got different cultural expectations? To, to some extent. I mean, obviously, you've got the governments in the countries of origin, like Nepal or India or Bangladesh, that have various rules and regulations in place regarding the outflow of their migrant workers. Then you have governments in the countries of destination, you know, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, who also have various rules and regulations regarding the inflow of, of migrant workers. To say it very in a simple way, these rules and regulations are very weak and they are monitored and enforced very poorly. Right, okay. So <laughs> are they really for show? Some of them are for show and some of them are implemented poorly because there's profit to be made from this. The reason these workers end up in trouble is because people are making money off the back of them. Maybe I can just kind of go through the steps that these workers all typically go through, which, which leave them in such a, a vulnerable condition. Yeah, that'd probably be very helpful. So what basically happens is that if you're a young man, let's say you're in Bangladesh or in Nepal, and, and you want a better prospect, you want a job overseas, you have to pay for that job. The employers in the Gulf don't offer those jobs for free. Now, you will have to pay a recruitment agent in your own country, anything from $1,000 to up to maybe $5,000 to secure that job because there's, there's less jobs than there are people wanting the jobs. But, but hold on, if, if it's 5000 for a job and you're earning 200 a month, hold on, that's five months, that's 25 months you have to work to break even, not accounting for any additional cost. Absolutely 100% right. Uh, wow. 
in fact, when I was in Qatar last, which was in August, September, I was talking to some young guys from Bangladesh and they said to me, we paid, we paid more than 5,000 for this job and I have to work for three years just to pay off the cost of the job and the interest associated with it. Now, none of these young men have $5,000 or $1,000 sitting around in their pocket. So generally they either, uh, generally they borrow money to afford that fee at a very, very high interest rate, and sometimes 36, 60%. And so before they've even left home, they're deep in debt. And as you say, they're gonna spend years often just paying off their debt before they're actually earning, even earning money. And that debt makes them very vulnerable to exploitation because they have an obligation to pay it back. So even if the conditions they find themselves working in are atrocious, they feel obliged, they feel tied to continue working in them because they've got a huge debt to pay off. But that, that's only the first step, Peter. It, it gets worse than that. So once these guys have paid some money and they've secured the job, they, they'll sign a contract, right? They sign a job contract. Sometimes it's not in a language they understand or sometimes it is. Typically, they only actually receive the paper contract hours before they leave home. And when I say home, I mean the airport in their country. I mean, often I've seen them literally pick up their contract at the airport departure gate. Now, time and again, the details on that contract, particularly the salary they were promised and the actual job they were promised are different. But when you've already paid a large amount of money, you said goodbye to your family, you're at the airport gate with the ticket in hand, it's too late. So these guys just shrug their shoulders and they think, okay, well, I'm just going to get on the plane and hopefully it's going to work itself out. So that's, that's the kind of a, a second stage of exploitation they face. So it's often called contract substitution. And then they arrive in the country of destination, let's say it's Doha's International Airport. And the very first thing their employer does is take their passport. Now that's illegal, but it's widespread practice. And when you think about it, think if, if someone was holding your passport, Peter, they would have this huge amount of control over you. You couldn't, you couldn't do a whole lot of things because they have that passport. It's not just the fact that you couldn't travel outside the country. It's the fact that if you do anything that they deem to be inappropriate or illegal or wrong, in a place like Qatar, the employer can just give the passport to the police and you're, suddenly you're in their hands. But isn't it also illegal for, for you not to be holding ID? Uh, you do have ID in Qatar. There's a, a separate ID card. Okay. It's not, not the same as your passport, uh, although that's a whole other issue because often workers don't get their ID card or if they leave their job because of exploitation and abuse, they lose their ID card and they can't get a new ID card. So th there's a whole another issue about holding documentation that is necessary. And then I, I would say the last step, the most significant step, is that every single worker in Qatar and in fact across most countries in the Gulf are subject to an employment system that's known as kafala. Kafala means sponsorship. And under this system, workers are tied to their employer so that they cannot leave their job and they cannot leave the country without their employer's permission. So it's a kind of deep corruption of the basic understanding of a labor market where the free movement of labor allows people go, to go and find better jobs. And if you think about it from the point of view of an employer, if you know that your employees cannot leave, whatever you do to them, where's the incentive to treat them right? And so when you put together these four issues, you know, recruitment debt, contract substitution, passport confiscation, the kafala system, 
you have this really potent and terrifying mix that leaves tens of thousands of young men vulnerable to to modern forms of slavery, forced labor mm-hmm. and bonded labor. It just sounds like a very abusive system. It's a very abusive system. I mean, people say, well, look, you know, at least these young men have a chance to go to Qatar and earn some money. No, the situation in Qatar, the system in Qatar is actually a trap. It's not a route out of poverty. Yeah. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. But before I do that, I also therefore think we should also cover the actual working conditions themselves, because this is the thing that's drawn me to it. Look, I'm Pete, I'm a huge football fan. I love, I absolutely love the World Cup. But we're talking thousands of people have died, right? Yes. And it just feels to me that, I don't know, I'm, I feel very ashamed and feel like I, you know, when 2022 comes around, I, I just, I don't know, I feel like I won't want to watch this World Cup because of the amount of people who've had to die for it to be delivered. So do you, do you know that total number of people who've died? Uh, <laughs> that question should be easy to answer. To some extent, it is. In, in other ways, it isn't. The first thing, let's, let's put a little bit of context to this. Qatar is hosting the World Cup. The numbers of workers employed in building World Cup stadiums themselves is relatively small, about 30,000. It's, it's, less, it's less than 2% of the entire migrant workforce in Qatar. However, the number of workers employed in building infrastructure to support the World Cup new airport, new roads, new hotels, and so on, and so on, is huge. You know, we're talking the tens of thousands here. Okay. So it's important to identify the difference between World Cup stadium workers and general workers, but even large numbers of the general workers are involved in building infrastructure for the World Cup. Now, every year, hundreds of migrant workers die in Qatar, and the majority of these deaths are identified as due to natural causes, typically associated with cardiac failure or respiratory failure. Now, Qatar has therefore somewhat dismissed these deaths as, you know, just, you know, people die, we've got two million migrant workers, some of them die. There's, There's two problems with that. The first problem is that I found out recently that in the vast majority of cases, the Qatari authorities do not carry out autopsies when migrant workers die. They just do an external examination of the body. Now, any forensic expert will tell you that an external examination of the body is not sufficient to determine the cause of death. In other words, we don't really know why hundreds of migrant workers are dying in Qatar. And secondly, there's been recent research that has shown a very close correlation between the number of migrant workers dying and the hottest months of the year. In other words, we can say fairly confidently that one of the reasons why migrant workers are dying is because of the extreme heat they work under. I don't know if you've been to the Gulf, but, you know, in May, May through to October, the heat outside from very early in the morning, even I would say 7 a.m., is unbearable. You know, if you've, if you've ever been in a, in a sauna, it's, it's, it would be literally like doing hard manual labor in a sauna. So clearly, Now, heat is a factor here. Um, And what's interesting is after my first report came out for The Guardian in 2013, I'm a freelancer, but but I write for The Guardian. Uh, After my first report came out, the Qatari authorities commissioned a major international law firm to investigate my findings. And the law firm largely backed up everything I said. And one of their recommendations was that, that the Qatari authorities should 
commission independent research into the cause of deaths of migrant workers. That was in 2014. Five years later, the Qatari authorities have still not done that. Okay. Are any of these deaths preventable? For example, could the work be carried out at night time? Could better hydration be provided? Have you looked into this at all? Uh, yes, we've looked into this. And actually, the, the ILO, the, the UN body, International Labour Organization, uh, in collaboration with the Qatari authorities, have recently looked into it as well. And what they found was that due to the extreme heat, migrant workers are very vulnerable to heat stress during the hottest month of the year. Now, there is a regulation in, in Qatar and in other countries in the Gulf that between, it varies between different countries, but roughly between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. during the hottest part of the year, workers are not allowed to work outside in direct sunlight. But the research that we did, and in fact the research that the ILO did, showed that this, these, this summertime working ban is not sufficient to protect workers. And even outside of these hours, they're exposed to extreme heat, uh, which leaves them potentially leaves them you know, vulnerable to, to heat stress, uh, to kidney problems, um, and to other things that may be partly responsible for this, this, this number of deaths. What is life like for normal Qatari residents? Is there certain things, you know, certain ways to adapt to this heat? The average Qatari lives in a parallel life to the average migrant worker. They are very unlikely to ever interact with them. Their experience in the country is totally different to them. And so, you know, they would, in terms of the heat, they would just spend the whole time in air conditioning. These workers, there may be air conditioning, there will be air conditioning in their labor camps, but as soon as they're out working, you know, they have to face up to this, you know, this really searing summer heat. It's hard to exaggerate how hot it is. And do you know what kind of hydration they're provided with or what they're provided with to reduce the risk of, you know, I'm going to say death, but reduce the risk of you know, illness or the effects of the heat? Are they provided with regular water, regular breaks? Is it 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off, or is it, you know, nothing? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> water is generally available at construction sites or, for example, men who are working on, on landscaping. Water is generally available. But it's interesting, this research that the ILO Commission shows that for workers not on World Cup stadiums, seven, they, the research showed that 74% of them suffered from dehydration at the end of every shift, which you know, is obviously a very significant factor. And what, what the ILO's research and our research also showed is that you know, the measures that are being taken, both in terms of reducing the working hours out in the extreme heat and in terms of things like availability of water, are not sufficient to protect them. I mean, really, if you're going to be really blunt and really strict about it, uh, mm-hmm. nobody should be working outside at any time during the hottest summer, summer months. But it, it sounds to me like even outside of those months, there's still, there's still risk. Uh, no, what I'm saying is even outside of the official hours when people are not supposed to be working, there are still risks. Yeah. Yeah, that, yes, that's what I mean. So it's like it's a very high risk environment anyway, and it feels like they're just pushing the limits. And is this because of, you know, a lack of care or is it more because of the deadlines? Because, you know, you can't miss the launch of the World Cup, right? Or, or is it just a combination of it all? 
it's a combination of economic factors. You know, companies have contracts to complete, and for that they need workers to work. Obviously, there's a tight deadline in terms of getting everything ready for the World Cup. But Peter, the the real issue behind this, in my opinion, is that the Qatari authorities don't view migrant workers as real human beings. Wow. Okay. They see them as as disposable. And so when you have a system that is based on the premise that these migrant workers are kind of subhuman, that they're disposable, then that excuses anything. I mean, you know, if, let's say, hundreds of Westerners or hundreds of Qataris were dying every year because of, you know, down to, to unknown reasons, there would be an outrage that this would be considered an emergency. So, so why don't we view it like that when they're Nepali or they're Indian or they're Kenyan? And I guess what you're saying there is when you say we, it's not only the Qataris, but it's, it's anybody attached to football who understands what's going on with the World Cup. Because, you know, me as a fan, I should care. FIFA should care. You know, the English FA should care. You know, but it just seems like this is being ignored. I agree with you. I think there has been some progress, and I can talk about that. Yeah. I have seen very little, for example, from FIFA that shows any inclination or interest in taking serious steps to address this issue. The Qatari authorities have begun to show some willingness to, uh, to do things differently, but that's followed a huge amount of pressure, uh, partly from the media, partly from human rights mm-hmm. organizations, and also partly from the UN. So I would say... There has been a small amount of progress, but it, it, it's it's come very late, and it's it's uh, it's it's minimal and it's it, it's it's glacial. Okay, so what progress has been made? What have you noticed? Okay, so last month the Qataris announced some major reforms, and they're the type of reforms that you know I've been advocating for, as have others, for quite a long time. Specifically, they said they would effectively abolish the kafala system. And they would allow workers to leave their jobs and leave the country if they wish to do so. And they would introduce a minimum wage, which would be the first of its kind in the Gulf. Okay. If these reforms are implemented, they could you know, represent a significant improvement in working conditions in Qatar. And they would be you know, a real victory for all those who have been demanding better rights for workers there. The proposed but, reforms do not solve all the problems, and there are big question marks about how far and how well they will be implemented. Well, I, the thing I was going to say there is that even with the removal of the kafala system, a number of the workers are still going to be in a position where they're indebted. So even if they have the freedom to leave, essentially they're still economically trapped. And I had read about also there is an essentially in a grievance process if you want to make a complaint, but people are too scared to use it. So it feels like it feels like there needs to be better regulation or a, a better system set up for the actual protection of the workers whilst they're there. Yes, correct. I mean, you're absolutely right. The reforms that the countries have announced uh, only uh, if they are properly in- implemented will only solve some of the problems workers are still likely to arrive deep in debt, which, as I said, makes them vulnerable to exploitation. There are mechanisms, grievance mechanisms, in place. 
as I understand it, they are getting better, but they are still not accessible enough, they are not quick enough, and they are not effective enough. I mean, Amnesty put out a report a couple of months ago uh, highlighting three major cases where workers had been waiting months and months to get paid. And you know that indicates that the grievance system is not working very well. Yes, because the delay in being paid is also another problem. I mean, what's happening there? Why, why are people not being paid? So if you, if you talk to any workers, whatever you want to talk about, they want to talk about something else, and that is pay. Okay. They will always talk about pay. Low pay, late pay, quite often no pay. And you know, here's the thing, here's the thing that I find interesting. If workers were just paid a decent wage on time, the vast majority of the problems in the Gulf that affect migrant workers would be solved. They're willing to put up with difficult conditions. They're willing to put up with squalid accommodation as long as they get paid on time. And the reason they want to get paid on time is obviously they want to earn money, but they're also obliged to pay off their debt. And they've got family back home who are relying on them for all their basic needs. And so pay is you know, probably the number one problem. So if Qatar actually introduces a decent minimum wage, which I'm not confident they will do, that would represent a, a significant step forward. But, but time and again, pay is the problem. And you asked, why is it the problem? You know, I, I don't think there's many employers in the Gulf who wake up in the morning and say, I'm not, I don't want to pay my workers today. I, you know, it's, it's not that. I think it's tied to some extent to bigger economic issues. The cash flow system within the construction sector in the Gulf is problematic. There's so many steps of subcontraction so that if the person with the money pays late, then the first contractor pays late and the subcontractor pays late and the sub-subcontractor pays late and the worker is always the one who suffers at the end. But surely the Qatari government has enough, has the resources to solve this. I mean, people not being paid, I think, comes with a lot of risk itself, right? I mean, that's additional stress. And also, you know, how are they economically surviving? Do they have, are they provided with food while they're there? Or do they have to buy that out of the money they earn? How, how does that work? It depends on the contract. Some contracts, food is provided by the employer. In others, they are given a kind of food allowance and they cook their own food. It just depends on, on the employer. Yes, in extreme cases, workers end up with very little cash and find it struggle to get by in basics. Although what typically happens is, you know, workers visit certain local shops to buy basic goods and they kind of run a credit system in those shops. You know, so I've seen ledgers in these shops with the names of the workers and long list of expenses that they've, they've incurred, which then they have to pay back when, if and when they eventually get paid. Wow, that's wow. Okay, again, there's a lot to, there's a lot to take in here. So, okay, so the first thing to solve is would be having people paid on time. That sounds like that's complicated and in the short term doesn't sound like something will be solved. You, you said there were three items that Amnesty raised. What were the other two? No, I said they, they, they focused on uh, uh, three cases, three big uh, cases, oh, three cases. of well-established well uh, companies which had, not, you know, which had not paid workers for a long time. I mean, I actually visited one of those companies and, and I, I, I went into the labor camps where those workers were and, 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 you know, they had, they had not been paid, I think they had not been paid for about six months. And, you know, there's another aspect to this. When you don't get paid for six months, your family becomes desperate. 
and uh, mm -hmm. they begin to suspect you know these workers tell me you know you know Pete, sometimes my families they don't trust me they think i'm just collecting all this money and that i'm not sending it back to them and this huge issue which is never talked about in, in, in qatar which is which is the, the the mental health of these workers that the the mental okay. pressure they're under to pay back their debt to earn money to send money back to their families it, it's it's a very very difficult environment for them and i'm guessing there's very little mental health support if any and is i mean what kind of medical facilities are these workers provided with actually you'll be you might be surprised to know the medical facilities are quite good and i know that okay. because i visited two of them a few months ago there are a number of medical camps that are set up specifically for workers and they're quite close to the major camps where the workers live and I mean, the first thing to say is these medical facilities are full. When you go there, there are, there are thousands of, of workers trying to get treatment. In fact, one nurse told me that they receive about 2,500 workers in, in every 24 hours, which, which he said was, was more than the, the major hospital in Doha receives. And, and also the treatment in these hospitals, if you have what's called a health card, is, is, is virtually free. So there are medical facilities available. Uh, workers can access them relatively easily. But there's problems as well. Let me give an example. When I was in Qatar last time, I met a group of workers who had not been issued with the health card by their employer. Now, if you don't have the health card, you cannot uh, get free or very cheap health care at these medical centers. Secondly, they told me their employer doesn't let them go to these medical centers if they're sick. And I said, so what do they do? And they say, oh, they just give us an aspirin. So oh there, there are these, there are these, you know, rogue employers and, and, you know, many of them who are really only concerned about their own bottom line and they're not concerned about the health and welfare of the workers. Are, are they making good money or are they under their own financial pressures? I think they're under their own financial pressures. Right. I, I see. I don't think Qatar is the promised land for a construction company. Uh, and, and that, that's part of the problem. But all, all the money is coming in from the top right, from the Qatari government. Not all of it. A lot no. of it. A lot of it is obviously for the major construction. But there's, you know, it's a big private sector there as well, and and so I think the money is coming from both sides. Okay. When you go back to the um, the pay, you said one thing that would help would be the implementation of a, I guess you're saying a fair minimum wage. What kind? Is any kind of study about what what a fair wage would be? Well, the international labour organisations say that the, the, the minimum wage they're going to uh, recommend is, is based on, on research. They're not just randomly picking out a number. At the moment, the, the minimum wage is, uh, like I said, $200 a month. Workers I have spoken to and workers groups I have spoken to you know, expect a minimum of $400 a month, which even that you would think is, 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 is hardly a, a high wage at all. But it's relative, right? Well, yes, sure. Like it seems low to us, but I don't know what a, what a, an average wage in Nepal is itself. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the weird thing, actually. You know, a lot of the salaries these workers are are, are getting in the Gulf are, are not uh, are significantly higher than what they could get in Nepal. And when you tie in all the other factors, like the cost cost the cost of recruitment they have to pay, they don't necessarily come back to Nepal with a healthy bank balance. The other point I'd make is this, even if a, a reasonable minimum wage is introduced in Qatar, 
The question is, will it actually be implemented? Will receivers actually receive that wage? So let me give you an example. I was, uh, when I was in Qatar recently, I walked past a construction site and I noticed that the men were wearing the logo of a British construction company or an, an, an affiliate of a British construction company. So I, I went to talk to them and um, I said, you know, how much are you earning? And they said, we're earning 625 rials a month, which is well below the minimum wage of 750. And I said, you know, that's below the minimum wage. And they said, yeah, we know, but there's nothing we can do about it. So I came back to the UK and I, and, and I started to phone up people in that British construction company. And that was, what, a month ago, six weeks ago, maybe. And I have been phoning, I have been emailing, I have been talking to them, and I still haven't got any response back. So here you've got a major British construction company. Its joint venture partner in the Gulf is breaking the law. Uh, more, more significantly, its joint venture partner in the Gulf is, is paying a, you know, a wage that is so low as, you know, you, there's no, there's no ethics. There's no reason that you could justify that low wage, and they are not showing any urgency in trying to address this. So, if you've got a top tier company that is just turning a blind eye to the minimum wage, how easy will it be for lower rung, smaller companies to get away with doing the same? Very easy, in my opinion. Okay, interesting. Was there any risk to you traveling out there and doing this research? Because I did read that there were, or I think it might have been an amnesty report that said taking photographs or visiting some of the labor camps itself was illegal. Yeah, it's a really good question. There is a risk involved, but I would qualify in two ways. First of all, you know, any risk that I would face in going to Qatar is, is very small and minimal compared to the risks many of the workers face in their day to day work. Having said that, you know, Qatar is an authoritarian regime. You know, they have no free press. There are no trade unions. There's no political opposition. There's virtually no civil society. They are not used to being questioned and held to account. And when my first report came out in 2013, I think that was a real big reality check from them. They didn't realize that <laughs> along with hosting the World Cup, you also get a huge amount of uh, media pressure. So... Unfortunately, they, they haven't managed it very well because I know at least, I would say at least 10 journalists who have either been detained or arrested or expelled for investigating this issue in Qatar. It hasn't happened to me. But Any of them mistreated? Uh, well, I would say I would say being detained for doing journalism is mistreatment. But no, I, no, but no. Of course, when, yeah. when I read the accounts of what they've gone through, you know, it, it's clearly pretty terrifying for them. And when they get released from detention, all of them go straight to the airport and leave the country. But, but my, my my point is this: if you host the World Cup, you shouldn't be detaining journalists or human rights activists for investigating the conditions of the workers building your World Cup. You know, the, the international sporting events should be run in, in a more transparent way than that. And I, I know for a fact that these stories of journalists being detained have, have put off people going to Qatar or, or made them uh, you know, a little careful about going. And I myself am careful. You know, when I go to Qatar, maybe to, to, to interview workers, you know, for the last few times I've gone, all my interviews took place 
in the back of my car with the lights turned out because I don't want to draw attention to myself and I don't want to draw attention to the workers that I'm talking to. I'm surprised they're not stopping you uh, at the airport though now or or following you. What what can I say? I'm a little surprised myself. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I mean, this, I mean, you didn't properly answer the question I said, do you know how many have been people have actually died in the construction because I guess getting to the numbers quite hard I've seen some various numbers and it seems to me like it's a few thousand but there's not an exact number is, is that and when I say a few thousand I'm saying it's it seemed to be somewhere between kind of three to ten thousand that I could find is that is that a fair range or is that too broad uh no that's that's inaccurate okay last year just among the world cup stadiums specifically 11 workers died. One worker died uh, through a workplace accident and 10 workers died in what the Supreme Committee, that's what they call themselves, the committee organizing the World Cup, their official name is Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy. 10 workers died through non-work-related deaths. They define them as non-work-related and what that means is they died off-site, typically in their labor camp. But as I've explained earlier, we can't say for sure whether those deaths were work-related or not. I mean, if, if, if it was due to heat stress, they could easily die at the end of their shift. So, you know, personally, I would see that as quite a significant number of deaths. If you're talking about, let's say, 10 workers a year for five, six, seven years that they're building World Cup stadiums, it's, it's quite a large number. But the important point is this. You know, there are tens of thousands of more workers building the infrastructure for the World Cup. Like I said, roads, hotels, airports, and the number of workers among them is much higher uh, who are dying. You know, I haven't got a figure off the top of my head, but it, it's, it's, it's in the hundreds every year. Maybe about 250 Nepalis, uh, more Indians, similar number of, of Bangladeshis. So it, it, every year it's in the hundreds. So on the website Observatory, International Observatory Human Rights, they estimated it could be up to 4,000 deaths before the start of the 2022 World Cup. I mean, you know, again, there's different figures, but you know, it, the broad range, of again, from the various websites I've seen, or maybe from what you've seen, we're talking hundred, hundreds to thousands. It's, it's still- that figure was, an, was a figure based on the number of people who had died in the preceding years. And then it was applied to the period from about 2013 to up to the World Cup. And I would say that figure is broadly accurate. If you take all the number of workers who died in Qatar between 2013 up to the World Cup, if the number if the number of deaths remains fairly consistent, it would be around that figure, yes. So that's a lot of people dying to deliver a World Cup. I mean, to me, the reason I'm coming to this number is... Uh, and it's, it may feel like a very unfair comparison, but if you look at the number of people who died, say, on September the 11th with those attacks, obviously those attacks were a terrorist attack and it was, it was, it, you know, it was dramatic and awful. But when you actually just look at the number of lives lost, it was around 3,000, I think, September 11th. And we're talking about 4,000 people, of which I don't know how many are unnecessary. Like, uh, you know, what what would be a realistic number of people dying? But we're talking thousands dying to deliver a World Cup. This, to me, is a scandal. And what I can't understand is why I'm not seeing more of this in the media. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to discuss this in a black and white way. 
it's tempting to do that. And I don't want to do that. Because okay. if you look at those 4,000, let's just let's, let's work on an assumption of 4,000. Some of them, a lot of them are dying from, believe it or not, road traffic accidents. People come from countries where big, fast, big, big roads and fast vehicles are not very common. A significant number die from suicides. Then you have a significant number that die from workplace accidents. And then you have a significant number that die from these so-called natural causes. With you know, work, workplace accidents, obviously, totally unacceptable. Natural causes is, is just a big unknown because the Qatari authorities refuse to investigate it. So either way, while the issue is not black and white, and I don't want to paint it as such, I agree with your general conclusion that, yes, this is, this is a tragedy, this is unacceptable, and it's largely unexplained because the Qataris refuse to investigate it. Now, the thing about being an authoritarian regime and a wealthy authoritarian regime is that you have no excuse for not investigating an issue like this. You can't say, well, we don't have the money, it's going to cost too much. I mean, you have the money, so go out there and find out what the problem is because that's the only way we're going to solve it. But obviously, they don't seem to care enough. So really, does this fall on FIFA? Should this be FIFA's responsibility? And what could FIFA be doing? Or should they be doing? I have seen, I may be wrong, but I've seen almost no evidence of FIFA speaking out on this issue, or, or, or indeed any issue regarding workers' rights in Qatar. They are the voice that uh, is not being heard. And in theory, they are one of the most powerful voices because this is, after all, their event. It's not actually called the World Cup, is it? It's called the FIFA World Cup. Mm -hmm. So of all the actors who have been involved in this issue, concerned about workers' rights, my feeling is that they have been the least active, the least effective, when actually they should be the ones, you know, being the most vocal in terms of reforms. Have you talked to FIFA? I haven't engaged with FIFA much. No, no. Most of my work has been focused on the Qataris and the other organizations that are working in the specifically on the issue. And and have you tried to? Is it because your focus is elsewhere, or or there's been a reluctance for anyone at FIFA to talk to you? No, I haven't. I haven't particularly tried. People have. I haven't particularly tried. No. It's been a very strange World Cup itself. In the way it was won, I think it was a big surprise. It's a very strange country to award World Cup to. The fact that it can't really be played in the summer due to the the heat conditions for players, it just it's, it's a very strange World Cup. <laughs> I don't know if you get that feeling. Well, yeah, I mean, the 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 thing that strikes me is that there is not a huge soccer fan base or even sporting fan base in Qatar. I mean, if you if you watch the the Athletics World Championships, that was self evident. You watch any local Qatari club Spain football, the stadiums are pretty much empty. So there's there's not a huge local demand for for big sporting events, and, and that's because essentially the Qataris see these big events as as a way to exercise soft power, as a way to get their their name and their their their, their profile out there around the world. It's not for a love of football. It's it's for a love of, of reputation. Yeah. it's See, I wonder what the legacy will be and what will happen to these stadiums afterwards because, you know, we've seen where countries have hosted World Cups or, you know, Olympics. I mean, I, I saw a, I think it was a documentary about what happened in Greece after they hosted the World Cup and, you know, what happened to the various venues that were built and, you know, a lot of them went into kind of disrepair and ruin. I kind of wonder what will happen in Qatar because I can't see what they will have a need for. Is it how many stadiums? Is it seven or eight? 
It's eight stadiums, seven new ones, and one uh, refurbished one. So you can you can see a demand for a national stadium, but you, I can't understand what the need will be for these other seven stadiums after the World Cup. I know, I know. And 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 this, if you go to Qatar, the stadiums are really, really close together, which the Qataris, you know, sell as a as a strong point is going to be the most accessible World Cup in, in the world, which you kind of understand the argument to some extent. But, but I know, it, like I said, Qatar's a, a tiny country. It's a, it's a local population of about 700,000 with eight huge stadiums. It is hard to see how they're going to be used. I mean, I've heard that some of the plans for the stadiums, that, that some of the stadiums will be dismantled and, and, and rebuilt or the, the, the seating will be, will be given to other countries around the world. But... Yes, uh, it's, it's hard to see that there's going to be a, a long-term a legacy for this World Cup, which goes back to my point. This World mm. Cup is not really about playing football. It's about playing politics. Okay. So what would you like to see happen, Pete? Obviously, you're a journalist and you're reporting on this. You know, What do you think should be happening? What do you think could happen? The first thing to say would be, you know, Qatar has announced some reforms. It will be very interesting to see how those reforms are implemented. Uh, and even if they are implemented well, whether that will really change the circumstances of workers there. I mean, you talk about a legacy of the World Cup uh, in terms of football. I'm quite interested in see what will the legacy of the World Cup be in terms of workers' rights. Will kafala really be abolished in Qatar? Will other countries in the region look to Qatar and say, well, look, they're making progress on workers' rights. We need to do the same. If the legacy of the World Cup is better protections for migrant workers, then I think the World Cup will have achieved something great. If not, the question is, what will it have achieved? Right. But it is, to me, still a scandal right now. And it feels like people should be aware of this. Uh, it feels like FIFA should be responding to this. It feels like one of those situations also whereby sponsors should be aware and the pressure perhaps should be put onto the sponsors themselves to for them to understand what's happening in Qatar. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Although I saw something interesting this week that, that relates precisely to that point. Last year, I went to Qatar and investigated one of the most luxurious hotels uh, in the Emirate, which is the Marsa Malaz Kempinski Hotel. I mean, this is a hotel that's is basically is, is sort of a fairy tale palace. It, it, this, this grandeur and scale of it is is unimaginable. And I interviewed men and women who worked at that hotel, and they told me terrible stories about the hours they have to work, the conditions they have to work in, the heat they have to work under, the the pay they get or in fact that they don't get. And I wrote a report on it. And then, as you know, uh, in December, the Club World Cup will be held in Qatar. And Liverpool's going to play there. They're going to they're join in, I think, at the semi-final stage and the final stage. Didn't they reject? Didn't, haven't they rejected the hotel? Precisely. And that's the hotel that I did the investigation on. Interesting. See, I, I saw that this morning in, uh, when I was just reading, but I didn't read the detail. What, what was going on there? And why have they rejected it? Because they read my report. Wow, okay. They didn't want to be staying at a hotel where workers had paid huge amounts of money to secure their jobs, where workers were being paid below minimum wage, where workers were on very, very long shifts, often standing out in the heat. And so they said, right, well, we're not going to stay there. And, you know, I, I, I applaud them for that. It's, it's an example of 
well, I mean, the football club is kind of a company, isn't it? It's an example of a company uh, taking its, its, its obligations to workers seriously. And I, you know, if other companies could do the same, that would create significant pressure for change. But wouldn't it be more interesting if Liverpool boycotted the, the World Club Championships because of this? I know it's a lot to ask, but <laughs> you're, you're asking me a question above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, given the, given the extent and the severity of the exploitation in, across the Gulf, given the fact that workers are, you know, tens of thousands of workers are basically working under a form of state-sponsored slavery. And I don't say that lightly. It's easy to use that word mm-hmm. lightly. I, I don't say it lightly. You know, given that hundreds of workers are dying and the authorities are not investigating the cause of those deaths, given that workers are working long shifts for very low pay, then certainly big companies, big organizations, big football clubs should be asking those questions. You know, is this something we want to be part of? Okay, so this interview will go out and go out to my listeners, you know. What kind of response would you like to see? What kind of and what message would you like them to take away from this? Look, there's a range of actors that can exert pressure for reform, and to some extent, potentially they they've had an impact. The media and the the football community have shown interest in this issue. I think they could exert a lot more pressure. You know, the average football fan, as well as you know, big football clubs need to be put in world pressure, particularly on FIFA, and said, you know, this is not good enough. We don't want to be part of a tainted World Cup. This is the sport that we love. We want to see the, the workers that are helping the World Cup be a success and protected properly. You know, that, that message is getting out. There are signs that it's having an impact, but it could be more powerful. There could be more people involved, and they could be speaking out louder. Okay. And what's next for you in this? What's, uh, where, where, where are you heading with this story now? <laughs> oh, well, I could tell you, but then I'd have to shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess this is something you're going to be focused on all the way up to the World Cup, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'll just flag up two things. I met a young man when I was there a couple of months ago called Rup Chandra. Uh, so, sorry, let me rephrase that. Uh, I learned of a young man called Rup Chandra Rumba, a 24-year-old construction worker from Nepal. He had been working for two or three months at one of the new stadiums, Education City. And uh, he died in his labor camp suddenly one night during the period he was working uh, at the World Cup Stadium. He has a wife and a a young son, six-year-old son, and neither of them have received any compensation from Qatar following his death. Okay. In fact, his wife told me that I, I, I did receive $590. I said, where did that come from? And she said, my husband's co-workers all donated whatever they could afford and they sent it to me. It's unbelievable. Well, that's what I thought. You know, but here's the thing, Peter. His, his, his is it's not a one-off case. Uh, workers who are dying in Qatar, including those at the World Cup Stadium, uh, their families are not getting compensated when they die. And one of the reasons they're not getting compensated is because the authorities say, well, these guys are dying in their labor camp. They're not dying on the work construction site, and therefore we have no uh, legal or financial obligation to their families. You know, I think this is, this is an outrage. It's, it's, 
it's unacceptable under any moral code, particularly when the country you're talking about is the richest country in the world and it has no shortage of money to send to these families who are now, you know, Rup Chandra's wife now has no husband, no income, and no compensation. And, and when I met her with her son in Kathmandu, you know, she said to me, like, my boy, my six-year-old boy keeps asking one question, where is my dad? Oh, man, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. The, the other issue, issue I, I would say that is important to understand is, is really at the root of all of this, uh, which is that, you know, the Qatari authorities, the authorities in Dubai and Saudi, you know, generally speaking, as I've said earlier, they do not view these workers as, as, as human. They, they think they're disposable. You know, I was talking to a Nepali man who'd worked in Qatar for a long time, and he, he said to me, Pete, you know, there's no human rights in Qatar because there's no humanity in Qatar. And I think what he meant was that, you know, the authorities there don't view the workers as human. And there is, there is a system of barely disguised racism that underpins this exploitation. At, at, at some levels, it's, it's actually written in law. For example, in Qatar, there are uh, parts of the country that are designated as family zones, and, and, and migrant workers are not allowed to live there. It's, it's a legal form of segregation. There are parks, there are shopping malls, there are tourist attractions that migrant workers are not allowed to go into. I've seen them with my own eyes be kicked out. And the excuse for kicking them out is that, well, these places are just for families. <laughs> but the funny thing is when I, as a single white man, go into them, and nobody stops me. And uh, you know, the third most obvious example of this is just the widespread exploitation. You cannot have a form of state-sponsored slavery. You cannot have so many deaths that are uninvestigated. You cannot have so many examples of low, late, or no pay, unless you view these workers as a, a sort of subhuman. And so, you know, slavery still exists in Qatar and slavery still exists across the Gulf for the same reason it has always existed throughout history, which is one race thinks they're superior to another race. Mm. Wow. Well, this has been a real eye-opener. And I think people listening to this are going to want to follow your work and follow how you continue to report on this. So what's the best way for people to follow you, Pete? <laughs> I'm maybe the only journalist in the world who doesn't have a Twitter account. <laughs> what? That's, a, that's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you can just Google my work or follow my work on The Guardian. Okay. Well, listen, look, I do really appreciate your time on this. I think it's valuable work. Um, I wasn't aware, again, that this was happening until Alex mentioned it. And obviously, we met in New York. I've read all your articles on The Guardian about it. I will share them out in the show notes. And I commend you for what you're doing. Uh, please keep doing it. And I, I hope I can obviously raise a little more awareness with this show. Yeah, that would be great because, you know, the more people understand what's going on, the more pressure that can be brought to bear and the more chance of, of, of real change. Brilliant. Well, listen, look, best of luck with this. And again, thank you for coming on. Not at all. So nice to speak to you. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope you enjoyed this. I do want to say a big thanks to Pete for coming on the show and for all the work he is doing to raise awareness of the mistreatment of migrant workers in the Gulf and specifically with regards to the World Cup. As a football fan myself, I feel ashamed at the human cost deemed by some as acceptable for hosting a World Cup. I believe that awareness needs raising and significant pressure needs placing on FIFA and the host sponsors. Also, before we close out, I do want to say a massive thanks to my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com.